It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis, and this week I'll be talking to George Eaton and Raphael Baer about why the Tories are suddenly looking so chipper. Ian Steadman and I discuss death on Mount Everest, and Sophie McBain and I talk about why we're all feeling so very anxious. I'm joined by George Eaton, editor of The Staggers, and our political editor Raphael Baer to talk about the week in politics. It has been not a vintage week, I think it's fair to say. We're still in recess at the moment. But the big news, if you can call it that, is that David Cameron and George Osborne appear together, smiling, frolicking in the spring sunshine, verily. Um, Raf, why are they looking so happy? Uh, well, they're looking happy because the economy is growing and they think that gives them a substantial advantage over Labour, who they will say predicted that the economy wouldn't grow and they would never grow again and that we'd all be foraging in the woods for grubs and berries and it hasn't happened and therefore they are vindicated and the the the, uh, the crucial point here up to even in terms of the presentation of it is that it's the two of them together saying we are the team with a long-term plan to save britain uh, and then the crucial caveat that follows to that is but there's more to be done in other words don't think it's solved and that you can have a nice luxury labor government back again you know we still need to be you still need a bit of tory toughness in the mix um the contrast that they want to bring into people's minds is with Ed Miliband and Ed Balls, who certainly in Westminster it is recognised, don't necessarily always sing from the same hymn sheets, and also who their focus groups tell them people look at and think, no, I don't really want you running my economy, thanks very much. Um, and so from that point of view, you know, this is their single most potent line of attack, and they're, you know, blooming well going to press hard on it. And George, it's been remarkable, hasn't it, in this government, how united David Cameron and George Osborne have been all along, even if they haven't necessarily made public appearances together. Yes, I, I think that's partly because um, David Cameron isn't a particularly ideological figure. So this is the idea that he's the chairman, not the CEO, right? So he's, yes. the, he's he wants to sort of coast above it all, kind of letting mm. people get on with their own things and just kind of generally keeping an overview. Exactly. And Cameron is a naturally conciliatory figure, which is one reason why coalition has, has suited him. But I also think they've learned from the Blair Brown experience. Um, I mean, they were fascinated by the new Labour project and also by how the tensions between... Blair and Brown meant that the government was nowhere near as successful as it could have been. It's also quite important that George Osborne was self-aware enough in opposition to recognise that he 
probably wasn't the person to be prime minister, but he could still have a lot of power as chancellor. The obvious contrast being there with Gordon Brown, who felt forever that you know he'd been usurped in some way. And ultimately, you know, it, when it was when Michael Howard was anointing the younger generation of his shadow cabinet, his first thought for future leader, possible prime minister, was Osborne. And, and reportedly, it was it was Osborne who said to him, "No, no, that." Cameron, and he's your man for the front of house stuff. And being an immensely powerful chancellor is in many ways a better job than being prime minister. And a great patron and bringing people on through the ranks, right? The last couple of reshuffles have seen Osborne. There was a great line in your column, wasn't it? If you want to be promoted, what is it you have to be? Uh, yeah, uh, well, what is it? Uh, a, a woman or have a regional accent or be Matt Hancock. So basically, an, an Osborne protege. Friend of, friend, of, friend of George. But there's an interesting point about coalition politics as well here, isn't there? Because the Damien McBride book about um, being Gordon Brown's spin doctor sort of says the only way to get, we discovered quickly, the only way to get a very boring policy announcement, any traction, was to play it as part of a Tony Brown, Gordon Brown row. And that's how you could kind of get road building in Soli Hull to be kind of an interesting, sexy story. Now what happens is that becomes a coalition round, doesn't it? It becomes, you know, free school meals or welfare cuts. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, there are, there are definitely two different kinds of coalition rows. There's the ones that are sort of permitted public airing where it, there has been some negotiated settlement um, and it's recognised that the Lib Dems want to get... Um, need def definition for themselves and they can do that against the Tories and the Tories are happy with that because they get definition certainly you know with the right wing of their party uh, if they are seen to be in conflict with Lib Dems and then there's the ones that you probably hear about necessarily much less that are also going to be the ones that are much more bitter which the things that they can't agree on or you know for example yeah what's an example of that well I mean certainly you know, I think the when you when up to the budget where they did the tax cuts um, the top rate tax cuts and there was a discussion of the mansion tax I think there were some quite difficult conversations there where actually George Osborne was prepared to see the case for a mansion tax or some kind of wealth tax and David Cameron was very much of the view that you know the, the, these, this hurts our people and we can't do it um, and then the lines were a bit blurred and that was a you know there was that's the sort of argument that you, it wasn't sort of briefed out until after the event when the Lib Dems wanted to prove that in fact they tried very hard to get you know to nail the rich and George there's a also a difficult position for Labour here because it is sort of generally accepted now that they've comprehensively lost the ability to make that argument that actually if you'd done um, Keynesian policies at the start there would have been the recovery would have been better it's very hard to make the kind of yes we're recovering now but we should have recovered sooner argument where does that leave them in terms of what they have to sell on the economy you're right about that argument sort of dissipating and collapsing which is why they made that shift last summer to the cost of living and they've adapt adopted that as their strategy. The question that they are going to ask in 2015 is, are you better off or worse off than you were five years ago? And the answer is going to be, no, you're not. Is um, it, though? It is, yes. Really I mean, definitely. the IFS, every economist in, in, in the business says, you know, there is, it is inconceivable that uh, just a year of, of, of wages sort of crawling above inflation is going to be enough to reverse the £1,600 average loss since... 2010. Uh, they are going to stick with that strategy and, and the decision to recruit David Axelrod is reflective of that. I mean, what was significant is that he's not just uh, a gun for hire, but he accepts Ed Miliband's intellectual analysis that the fundamental problem in, uh, in, in Western societies is severed link between uh, the growth of the national economy and the, and, and the stagnant growth of, of family finances. So for those who don't know, David Axelrod was a long-term Obama strategist, ran, uh, helped run the 2012 campaign, yeah. was involved before then? as well yes yeah in fact involved since obama's uh, senate race in, in chicago so i mean 
the Obama strategies, the sort of definitive strategies, inevitably, as with all of these appointments, I think there's been slightly too much sort of excitement and, and hype around it in, in the extent to which he will actually change Labour's, Labour's fortunes is probably is probably negligible. But it's significant that he buys, accepts Miliband's analysis. There's a genuine sort of centre-left uh, shared assessment of, of the economy and, and society. And also there is a vote of confidence that he, although he has worked with candidates he've lost before, he clearly would not be working for Ed Miliband, who didn't think he had a, a good chance of becoming Prime Minister. And Raf, um, it was a big to-do last summer when George Osborne had Jim Messina um, mm. to advise the Tories on their election campaign. Why are both the big parties so enthralled to America? Is it just because they watched The West Wing and then they were growing up yes. and they wished that they were Josh <laughs> and Toby <laughs> they, in The West Wing? Well, but no, they were mostly grown up, I think, by the time of the West Wing. But there is an element of romanticising American politics. I think there is also a a crisis of kind of connection between British politics and the electorate. And you've seen that. This is the reason why UKIP are doing well. I mean, ultimately, there is a, none of the, as it were, mainstream frontline candidates has really found a language to um, to to create inspiration or enthusiasm among voters. That's so they've reached the limit of what they can do in terms of inspiration. And I think there is still a degree, a sort of a romantic idea of the, of the Obama campaign, particularly for 2008, also to an extent 2012, which is actually quite out of date in the US. I mean, you speak to most Americans, they say, you know, Obama's, he's becoming a lame duck. Uh, he's lost his touch. He's sometimes seen as aloof. There's the equivocations. The healthcare stuff wasn't handled well. All of that. Um, but that doesn't matter here. He's still a political pinup and he's seen as a, a sort of a political commodity that has a certain allure that simply, I mean, no one won the last election and it looks very probable that no one will win the next one. And so anyone who's got the luster of victory around them is a, is a hot property. So the Labour's kind of idea about are you better off now than you were in 2010 is got to be just about the most kind of telegraphed punch in history. So what will the Tory response to that be? Um, well, the, the, first of all, the the Tory response will be, what are you going to do about it? Um, because you know, they say we've delivered growth. Growth is what makes people better off. If you have a growing economy, you can cut taxes. You can cut taxes for ordinary, hardworking people. We've got a plan and our plan is working. You're just sitting around pointing at things and complaining about how expensive they are. Um, and that is, a, I mean, that is a problem for Labour, that they have an It's been a problem for a long time. They have an analysis. They don't really have a prescription, or at least the scale of the prescription isn't equal to the scale of the problem they, they claim to be identifying. And, of course, the other part of the Tory response will be, um, they're all very clever, but Ed Miliband, come off it. Um, and it'll be a very personal attack on the character and leadership credentials of the leader of the Labour Party on the grounds that a lot of people look at him and just simply don't think he is capable of rising to the challenge of being Prime Minister and the Tories aren't going to be squeamish about punching that bruise. And George, in a feature I've literally just this second decided to introduce um, from now on, where are the polls now on uh, for the party's voting intentions for They're next They're all over here taking our jobs, according to you, <laughs> Um, you've got an average Labour lead of around four or five points at the moment. And the Scottish independence referendum? Oh, so these are predictions for... Oh, oh, so oh no, sorry, let's, yes. Let's do both. Uh, this no, is the it. This is going to be our public service. Um, in some polls, the gap is as narrow as three. In others, it's as wide as 15. Uh, the, the no campaign have an average lead of around eight Okay, well, and remind me. by-elections in South London. <laughs> yeah, Bars. that's very true. <laughs> well, how are things in East Asia? Well, in, the, uh, in the Europeans, interestingly. I mean, despite 
the upsurge in, in publicity for UKIP, I mean, albeit some of it negative, uh, Labour have this stubborn, small but stubborn lead in the Europeans. But as, as UKIP strategists point out, they always have a late surge in the Europeans. And this big poster campaign they've launched, you know, £1.5 million, that will inevitably raise their profile even further. OK, well, remind me to do this again next week or it'll be the shortest-lived feature in history. Thank you, George and Ralph. Thank you. Thank you. I'm joined by a science and technology writer, Ian Stebman, to talk about tragedy on Everest. Last week, 16 Sherpas were killed in an avalanche as they were trying to prepare the mountain for this season's climbers. Um, Ian, so tell me about this very odd thing that happens on Everest because so many people want to climb it. Yeah. They've essentially instituted kind of trails up there that are the other kind of approved trails. Yep. Um, there are a limited number of ways to get up to the summit. Um, at the moment, there are about 600 people who climb Everest each year. They pay sometimes as much as $100,000, um, which goes towards equipment and training and to license fees to the Nepalese government to climb up the mountain. It's easier to climb from the Nepalese side. Um and at the moment, that's so many people that you kind of get traffic jams on Everest, which is crazy to think. Um, there was a famous photo last year of um, a climber took of people queuing, waiting to go up to the summit, just this long queue of climbers waiting to go up. Um, and which, that's insanely dangerous, isn't it? Because yeah. above a certain height, you're essentially in what they call the, the death zone. The death zone. So um, the air is incredibly thin there, and you can only... I think there's a saying, once you're above that height, you're you're dying. Yes. You just have a certain amount of time in which to get to the top. Exactly. Of um, it, it's not the kind of thing either. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The oxygen tanks can help with because oxygen tanks are pretty heavy and they don't last very long. So there's really kind of you have to get in and get out. Um, they say that if you fall over or, or you can't get up or anything, other people have to leave you because they really won't have the strength to continue. Well, this um, is what I find one of the most macabre things about the idea about climbing Everest is that you have to climb past, and they're essentially kind of landmarks on the way up. There's a guy yeah. who's known colloquially as Green Boots because yeah. he died there several years ago, and because you don't decompose because of the altitude and the cold. Yeah. Um, He's just where he kind of cra- he crawled into a little alcove and, and died. And he's, it, I think that was in the 80s he died. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he's still there. And he is a waypoint. Very macabre. Um, um, but he won't decay. But the, the, that's kind of a big problem with Everest, that, that nothing decays up there. It's so cold. So there are empty oxygen tanks, empty food wrappers. There's a lot of poo everywhere. Um, that's a big problem. There's estimate, it's estimated to be about as many as 50 tonnes of rubbish on Everest. Um, so which isn't the, going anywhere. It doesn't blow down. It just stays there. So one of the things that was hoped to happen, I mean, the, ca- the, the climbing season for this year, which is only essentially two months long anyway, has been cancelled, yeah. right? But one of the things that they had been hoping to do was forcing everyone to bring some of this. Yeah, they, they were hoping to introduce this rule that everyone would be uh, have to bring eight kilograms of rubbish down with them. Most people go up the mountain carrying about 20 kilos um and they thought that they would be able to handle maybe eight kilos to bring it down but even at the rate of 600 people a year that would take most of a decade to clear the mountain of the rubbish um and it's not clear how 
if they're going to be able to do that because well there is this strike as well um which is um because effectively it's it's too dangerous for too little reward um sherpas are actually it's quite a prestigious job in nepal is um you earn the climbing season is about three months long and you tend to earn about 10 times as much as the annual median wage there you can earn up as much as um six six thousand dollars a year which doesn't sound a lot to us but by the standards of the Nepalese economy, that is huge. Um, well, this is one of the things that I find kind of fascinating and horrible about Everest climbing, because obviously it has become a sort of badge of honour. Not only that there are a lot of people who are climbing enthusiasts who climb everything, you know, and this would be the pinnacle of their career, but yeah. there's also a certain kind of essentially person who isn't up to climbing it, who wants to kind of oh, go on the so. closest to thing you can possibly get to a kind of guided tour yeah. up there. And um, you can even get people to carry your bags for you. Yeah, it's um, it's become part of the global um, sort of extreme sports industry. You, you see, I mean, I'm sure you've seen this, like people on Facebook saying, I'm fundraising to go climb Everest or something, people that you know and kind of think, well, really, you're climbing Everest? Um, even something like Kilimanjaro is pretty serious, but people seem to do that as if it's a stroll in the park these days when... They maybe shouldn't. Um, and but that's one of the things I have to say. I find that quite distasteful because essentially you're going into an economy that is, you know, it's, Nepal is not a rich country. No. And people who've got an enormous amount of money, even if they're fundraising, yeah. are, are still relying on, you know, very cheap foreign labour in order to do... And let's face it, there are other ways to fundraise that don't involve you also getting to post it like, oh, here's yeah. a selfie of me at the top of Everest. Yeah. There are all kinds of problems that come from the tourism industry always. Um, but in Nepal, it's kind of interesting that the the rubbish on the mountain kind of kind of becomes symbolic for the entire problem with pollution and natural decay in, in Nepal. I mean, a lot of the... It's um, an economy that's still heavily reliant on subsistence farming. Um, and, you know, forests are being destroyed and uh, the soil is being eroded away. And it's quite a hard place to live a lot of the time. Um, well, it's a very hard place to live in terms of uh, that some of those places have got practice sky burial. So um, because <laughs> yeah. you can't get down through the permafrost, you can't bury people and yeah. because you can't afford the fuel to, to burn people. Then essentially you are kind of hacked to pieces and left for vultures to eat, eat your body so that you return to the soil. And that's actually you know, as ways of kind of dealing with, with dead people go. That is a, a quite a, a, an ecologically friendly one. Yeah. It does emphasize quite how little spare kind of give there is in, in the landscape. Mm. Um. But I think that the, the sh- it's also um, Everest and climbing Everest is a huge part of the Nepalese economy. Um, it generates $3.3 million per year in government revenues, which is something like half a percentage point of the total GDP of Nepal. So that's, I, I don't know exactly an industry that's comparable to in the UK, but you can imagine if there was an industry that had 0.5% of the economy going on strike, that would have a lot of, of yeah. sway. Um, they want the insurance given out to Sherpas families, who, Sherpas who have died, their families, go up to 2 million rupees, which is about $22,000. Um, and I imagine they'll be successful, simply because it's such they're such a vital part of the Nepalese society and culture. It's fascinating, because Bhutan, for example, which is also a really mountainous place, has yeah. decided to essentially limit tourist visas to only people who come in on really high-end luxury tours, because yeah. they feel that they don't want herds of people tramping through, because it will spoil all the things that it's supposed to, to celebrate. Yeah. Uh, but also, they might as well try and extract the maximum value from the people who, yeah. who do come. Which is interesting, considering that's Bhutan, which has you know gross national happiness instead of GDP. 
be is its uh, measure of economic success. Well, I think there's a, I guess there's a point about trying to weigh up the economic advantages of, of tourism industry with the disruptive influence and, and all the things that come along with tourism, you know, for yeah. example, like the sex industry, for example, which is something yeah. that if you have an influx of foreigners who have got loads of money to spend and far more than the local population, that can lead to some extremely exploitative practices. Anyway, um, on that rather sombre science and technology note, I will say thank you to you for this week, Ian. Thanks. I'm joined by our staff writer Sophie McBain to talk about anxiety. Now, you wrote about this subject for um, for a cover story for the magazine, which was really well received. It turns out that quite a lot of people in journalism uh, and politics are incredibly anxious. And why is that? Because, I mean, you talk about in the piece about whether or not it's kind of what people now refer to as a first world problem. It's what you can, you know, what goes wrong in your life when there's nothing else to go wrong. Is that a fair assessment or is that is that unfair? Um, I think it's actually a little unfair. I think probably most people have a relatively similar level of, or rather your your position, whatever country or class or profession you're in, you probably have a relatively similar um, chance of being anxious. But I think different people feel more able perhaps to label what they're feeling as anxiety. So for instance, there was a study done and... Um, I've completely forgotten the person's name, but he he um, he found that people were equally anxious in countries like India and developing countries where traditionally they're much less likely to report anxiety if polled. So this is this idea that actually it's one of those things that you might only talk about if there isn't anything else in your life because it's not seen as a natural reaction. If you're undergoing extreme stress in your life, then it would be strange not to be anxious. So what we're talking about here is being anxious in the absence of any obvious external factor. Is it getting worse? Um, I personally don't think it's getting worse. I think lots of people write about the fact that it's getting worse and people point to, in terms of short-term changes, they point to the recession and um, squeezed living standards in the UK or even modern technology. Um, And then you can take a much longer view and say there's something about modern society and the breakdown of the nuclear family. But actually, if you look through history, lots of people at different points of time have thought that they live in a uniquely anxious age. And I suppose we should clarify what you mean by anxiety, because the book that came out, The Age of Anxiety, detailed um, a a writer of the Atlantic and the kind of extreme anxiety that he suffered to the extent that he was like pretty much lost control of all his bodily functions right before he would go on stage. So what identifies what 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 is as a medical condition what defines anxiety well so the medical definition is that you have to you, you have to have um severe feelings of anxiety and then accompanied by other a kind of checklist of other symptoms like sleeplessness or uh muscle tension um and one of the interesting things about the medical definition is that there's no sense in which your anxiety should be proportionate to what you're suffering what to um sort of causes hap- yeah so someone who's extremely anxious because they're suffered a bereavement or their marriage is broken down or something like that there's no difference between that and somebody who or in the surface of it everything's going right which i suppose makes it the obvious analog of, of depression 
And there's been the similar debate about depression. And is depression sometimes a reaction to, you know, when terrible things happen to you, it would be strange not to go into, a, you know, kind of the black dog versus the fact that people struggle with the idea that why should I feel like this? Why should I feel like I just cannot get out of bed in the morning? I cannot do anything in my life when I have got essentially a brilliant life. Yeah, and actually anxiety and depression are very, very closely linked. So quite often, if you're depressed, you suffer from ex extreme anxiety and the other way around. So quite, um, there's quite high comorbidity. And there's a big debate as well about the medicalization of kind of psychological states. So you talk in the piece about the idea of panic attacks as a, as a thing, separate from anxiety, as a, a thing that happens, didn't really exist until someone wanted to market a drug that countered panic attacks, right? Yeah, yeah, I think there definitely is. I think the pharmaceutical industry has played a very big role in terms of how we how we label our our feelings. And that it doesn't necessarily mean that modern drugs created anxiety or that they created depression, but they did, they have shaped the way that we that we view ourselves and the way we label those emotions. And finally, in, if you uh, do suffer from really high anxiety, maybe as you're listening to this podcast, you suddenly realise that that is actually what you, there is a name for what you're suffering. What are the practical steps that you should do? I mean, I presume that if it comes to this point where you are in the state that the, uh, the person who wrote the book is, you should definitely seek a doctor's opinion. But generally, what can you do in your life to reduce your levels of anxiety? Well, for something that is, can be really quite crippling and debilitating, most of the advice is fairly pedestrian. It involves eating healthily, making sure you get enough sleep, doing exercise. But I also think that it's always worth going to see your GP um, if you are feeling really anxious, because I don't really think that people should have to feel unnecessary anxiety. And how good do you think that GPs are now with, with dealing with the conditions like that? I mean, I presume a lot of the fear that people visiting their GPs comes from the idea that you'll be sent home again with kind of come back when you've got a real problem. Yeah, well, um, I think that um, speaking to people who've suffered anxiety for decades, they do think that GPs have got better. But um, someone from, um, the, from an, a mental health charity told me that actually a third of GP cases are mental health conditions and they don't receive that kind of same proportion of training. So um, in my personal experience, I think it's a bit of a lottery. You could get a GP who's really, really um, switched on and informed about mental health problems and you can get um, someone who really doesn't quite know how to deal with them. And you mentioned the charity there, Mind, who I presume if you look on their website, there's probably more information there as well. Yeah, and another one called Anxiety UK. Okay, well, brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Sophie. Thanks. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast. You can find us every week on iTunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. We're produced by Philip Morn and our theme tune is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons.
Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.